genre. Franchiseography, the podcast that digs deep and boldly goes into the entire filmographies of Hollywood's biggest film franchises. I'm, I'm Nick Camelli. Today, we are continuing our mini series on the Star Trek franchise with the sequel that returned the next generation films to their Roddenberry roots. It's 1998's Star Trek Insurrection. And we have a guest joining us to talk about plastic surgery, elaborate holodeck conspiracies, and the fountain of youth is Alex Montgomery. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So, uh, Star Trek Insurrection, the third next-gen film, is, I think, an interesting one following um, First Contact, which was just an absolute juggernaut of a success. Um, And uh, and then this one comes out, which is a lot more low key for a lot of reasons that I'm, I'm going to get into when we get into the um, sort of uh, discussion about the development of the film. Um, but before we do that, before we do that, um, Alex, uh, what is your background with Star Trek? Um, where, when did you first become a fan of Star Trek um, just in general? And, uh, and then, and then uh, talk about this movie a little bit and your, your overall thoughts on it. I think my first contact with Star Trek was actually a first contact where I watched it when I was uh, six or seven years old, perhaps. And it really just, you know, I was already a really big fan of Star Wars at that point. I think my earliest memory is watching uh, Phantom Menace at home on VHS back when people actually watched movies on physical media. But mm-hmm. I it totally just blew my mind. I became obsessed instantly. And I think I was reminiscing earlier today trying to think of funny anecdotes and when i was 12 my mother presented me with the star trek encyclopedia the revised edition by the way not the 1996 version and i probably came the closest to fainting i ever came in my life it was just my legs gave out and my mom had to catch me it was just sensory (laughs) overload but um yeah i would I would say I'm probably the biggest Star Trek fan I know. <laughs> it's just, I don't really, <laughs> no one else in my life is really like the Star Trek guy. And I guess I'm the Star Trek guy in a lot of people's lives. All right. That's awesome. So do you, do you remember seeing Insurrection the first time? I do. I went after, you know, I was building and building my obsession and uh, going through my training uh, as uh, my mom would like to say. I remember watching it like I think it was by myself and I was just like, huh, well, you know, I've been I'd been reading some reviews online that said it wasn't like as good as first contact. So I decided to just take the punch for myself. And I was 
not surprised by how mediocre it was, or at least that was my first impression of it. I, as I've gotten older, I've grown to appreciate certain elements more, but like I rewatched it again yesterday and it really, it seems like the Star Trek cinematic equivalent of just drinking a glass of lukewarm water. Well, and that's sort of the, that's sort of the criticism of this movie, right? Because like, in, in in the scale of I guess like glasses temperatures of glasses of water, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a whole scale. It's <laughs> right? like the the lukewarm water is like every episode of Star Trek exactly. that you've ever seen, exactly. And that's what this feels like. Is it just feels straight down the middle? Mm-hmm. I've seen this a million times, even if I haven't seen it, you know. And and I think it lacks a, a sort of special quality to it. I absolutely um, agree. As a result, and um, yeah. I was actually thinking while I was watching it, like if they didn't stop making next generation, like if they just kept the show going, like concurrently with all of the other Star Trek shows that were going on. And this was like a two parter in that sort of alternate extended next generation. This would be like not even close to being the best episode of the next generation or even the best episode of Star Trek that was going on around that time. Like there are plenty of, two-parters in Voyager that I can name off the top of my head that are just more compelling off the bat just in terms of character and plot. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And, and there's, and there's reasons for that, uh, that I'll, I'm, I'm excited to get into, mm-hmm. but Nick, was this your first time watching this or had you seen this before? This was, uh, this was my second time watching Star Trek Insurrection. I first watched mm-hmm. it during my, uh, 2016 Star Trek movie rewatch that we, I went into detail back in our first episode. That yeah. being said, yeah. uh, I had zero memory of this movie going into it. Like, <laughs> I couldn't remember a single frame. I, I couldn't remember uh-huh. what Paradise looked like. I couldn't remember what F. Murray Abraham looked like. Um, and I think both. But I think I'm. I'm I, I agree with both of you. Like there, there isn't anything egregious or offensive about this it, it's just you know it, it's almost yeah it's, it's like a typical epi- episode of star trek or an episode of like the orville and it's it's yeah. doesn't have enough to you know yeah it's a, it's a substandard episode of star trek it's really too bad um i saw this in theaters and i remember thinking after first contact i became a huge sort of trekkie um, you know, this, this sort of 11 year old kid who was just like really into Star Trek for a couple of years. And then Insurrection came out and killed it, murdered it dead. Yeah, just that would do it. I, 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 I lost all interest in Star Trek after this movie because I was like, I, I was just so excited to see a new Star Trek movie. And then it was this that was just like this. I, I don't even know how to describe like. I mean, it was, it's like, it's like, it's an, it's a movie about an insurrection, about a conspiracy. It's also a a movie about, about aging, but not that much about aging, just sort of a hint about aging, but then also about like being youthful and, and all, and it's, it just doesn't, you know, as a 13 year old boy, this did nothing for me. (laughs) Um, And, uh, and I was, I was 
bored. I was bored mm-hmm. um, and uh, very, very disappointed to the point that I haven't mentioned this yet. But next week we're covering Nemesis. Oh, boy. It will be my first time ever watching it. Well, um, I, Godspeed. Because I, what ju- I say. Yeah. Be- <laughs> because I just didn't care anymore at that point. Mm-hmm. This movie single handedly killed all of my interest in Star Trek for basically until the 09 movie came out. Mm-hmm. Um, that was what sort of reignited my love of Star Trek. Um, but uh, yeah, this one, this one was a rough go. I will say rewatching it. Though today, it's really not that bad. It's not even really that boring. That's what's kind of frustrating about it is that it's so, like you said, down the middle. It's kind of, I feel bad. Like I, I almost feel bad like calling it a bad movie because I don't think yeah it's a bad movie. There's obviously a lot of time and effort that went into this, and the people Mm -hmm. making this movie really love Star Trek and. You know, directed by Jonathan Frakes, who also directed First Contact and, of course, played Commander mm-hmm. Riker. You know, I, I there's so much to yeah. appreciate in how they choose to recreate the experience of watching an episode of Trek and doing something mm-hmm. more cerebral and more, like, allegorical than First Contact being, like, a really great whiz-bang blockbuster. And the idea is introduced right. to really interesting... And uh, it should be said, like, I just have a great time watching this crew. What, what's interesting is Star Trek Insurrection is the most expensive Star Trek movie ever made at this particular juncture mm-hmm. um, with a budget of 70 million dollars. This was a massive budget uh, that I don't see an ounce of on screen. Um, yeah. <laughs> and <it's, laughs> Visually, and, uh, it, it can is, fall flat at times. I agree. Yeah. Well, it's just like, I don't know what they spent all that money on. And I, I guess my understanding is a big part of it is that they built, you know, that entire mm-hmm. little town, that village, um, which I just think is mostly unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, it, it, it's, they could have found a location. Like they didn't need it to be that they could have like redressed. They didn't need it to be. A, an original built from scratch village. Um, right. And then maybe they could have spent that money in uh, other sections of the, of the movie. Um, so, okay. So going all the way back to the beginning, first contact, huge hit, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people um, would compare it to wrath of Khan, which is something mm-hmm. that comes up a lot in star Trek movies, right. the comparison to wrath of Khan. Um, in fact, it came up once again during the development of this movie where early on one of the ideas for this movie was like, oh, what if we bring lore back Data's evil twin brother? <laughs> um, and yeah, so they were going to do a lore um, centric movie that was going to be like a sort of a Wrath of Khan-esque story. Um, they had been threatening to kill Data for like a really long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, like going back to even First Contact, um, there were all these rumors in in fan circles that like, oh, they're, they're going to kill Data because Brent Spiner would uh, make it uh, very well known that he was tired of one all the makeup that w- was required to play Data, and two the fact that he was aging and wouldn't look like Data for much longer. Um, and he was like, "We there, there's no option. Like I can't play Data forever. I'm gonna age. Data's not supposed to age. We have to kill him at some point." And so, uh, you know, that's always like going through um, their head every time they're developing one of these. Is like maybe this is the one where we kill Data. Um, so. Lore was was discussed. Eventually, that story idea was thrown out. Um, and 
one of the ideas that uh, a Paramount um, studio exec came was like, well, we did sort of a Wrath of Khan thing with First Contact. What if we did Voyage Home with this one where not time travel, but like a fun one, you know, like funny, a comedy. Like, why don't we do a comedy one? And um, it, it, it's an interesting thing. I, I can't find why uh, Moore and Braga didn't come back um, to do this one after the success of First Contact. I imagine it was just like that was such a success that they were able to like move on mm-hmm. from Star Trek um, and, and didn't want to come back. I imagine that's all it was. Um, so Berman had to turn to uh, Michael Piller, who was sort of the co-architect of 90s Trek mm-hmm. um, in terms of he and Berman, like he took over Next Gen in season three, made Next Gen the sort of juggernaut in Star Trek that it became the creative juggernaut and then would go on to co-create Deep Space Nine and Voyager. Um, and so he was like the guy. He was like the Star Trek guy to the point where like I'm sure that Berman probably went to him first for generations and he was like, I can't. I look at all these balls I'm juggling. Like I, I can't also write a movie. Um, and so he was finally able to come and, and do this movie. Um, and they brought him this this concept of like a comedy. Michael Piller, um, who tragically uh, passed away from neck cancer in 2005, um, is while he is the sort of architect of this era of Star Trek, um, he's not the funniest guy. Like he's kind of a very like dry sort of like what you would associate a personality with Star Trek would be. Um, and the idea of them giving him the reins on a, on a comedy centric Star Trek movie sort of goes the way that you think where it starts off with him developing a comedy. And then he's like, what if it's also an ode to heart of darkness? (laughs) And it's like, wait, (laughs) you're going to make a comedy movie about like everyone, uh, recapturing their youth. Um, but you're also going to make it like a, a, a sort of a reference to Heart of Darkness. That's ridiculous. Like, how do you even put those things together? And in that initial draft, it didn't work at all, shockingly. Um, but the idea was that um, the, uh, you know, data sort of turning on the Federation early on, he would then go and hide in the mountains. And that's who they were going after um, and finding the guy who goes native turns out to be data. Um and uh, and yeah, and it just didn't work at all. Uh, and 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 the tone was all over the place, um, and the comedy didn't really work because, you know, uh, again, Michael Pillar, not the funniest guy. Um, it's just not 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 the guy you get to write a comedy episode, uh, comedy episode, yeah, <laughs> comedy movie um, for for Star Trek. It just doesn't work. And so there's a lighthearted tone for through a lot of this, but I wouldn't call it a funny movie. Um, and so that's the first thing that like goes wrong with this, I think. Um, and you know, the, the sort of ask, uh, uh, to Michael Pillar about like what this movie should be versus what he was capable of writing. The, the two things just didn't go together. And I think we end up with something that's kind of generic. The other part of that, um, is that Pillar had, he was like, well, if this ends up being the only Star Trek movie that I write, I want to write something that is an is sort of a love letter to Gene Roddenberry. And so he's like, I'm going to take everything that Roddenberry ever taught me about story, 
about <laughs> conflict, about structure, and I'm going to turn that into a movie that is a love letter to Gene Roddenberry. Um, and I, you know, in terms of that, the one success this movie has is that this was the last Star Trek thing that Roddenberry saw before he died, and he said it's the only Star Trek movie that he liked. So. I guess that's a success uh, from a certain point of view, um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it, it, it it turns into kind of a this interesting thing where, you know, Jonathan Frakes, who should have been given more creative control on his second Star Trek movie after First Contact being such a hit, but Berman didn't see First Contact being a hit as having anything to do with Jonathan Frakes being behind the camera. And so Frakes just like wasn't really even consulted on the direction of this movie. Um, it was just like, yeah, he's going to direct it and, it and it'll be like an episode of the TV show where the director doesn't really have any say in the creative direction of the episode that he's directing. Um, he's just, uh, you know, the guy behind the camera. Um, and I feel like that is unfortunate because I think that's why you know, he goes on to do Clockstoppers instead of Nemesis and the next one um, because he's like, well, I don't even I didn't even have any creative control over this movie. You know, like I had fun making it, but it's that's it. Like there's not there's not a lot here that is like there's not a lot of freaks in this movie, you know, um, and uh, and that's unfortunate. Um, but uh, he does get some good moments as uh, as Riker, I will say. Oh, absolutely. I think one of my favorite uh, aspects of this movie and one which I really noticed on rewatching it is that the chemistry between Jonathan Frakes and Marina Sirtis is, you know, it's always a joy to watch, but you can tell they're just having so much fun just bouncing off of each other. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I wish this was the version of this not written by Pillar uh, that was a comedy story about them finding a planet that is essentially the fountain of fountain of youth. I love the concept of the sort of naturalistic society living on this planet with the fountain of youth versus this alien race of like plastic surgery obsessed, you know, uh, creatures. And I, I, I find that that, sort of conflict inherently interesting and and could have been you know the source of a lot of comedy mm -hmm. but ultimately i think it just sort of becomes this bland you know saltine cracker of a movie unfortunately i think the uh you know it, it becomes kind of a generic action adventure by the end of it and the really interesting mm -hmm. sci-fi ideas or the to go back to start to the kind of moral quandary presented to the audience even going back to the concept of mm -hmm. the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few uh right. the card kind mm -hmm. of rebels against that concept in this movie but th they don't take any time to really ponder or like really make the villains three-dimensional beyond like your average like 90s action movie at the time there's also i think scott what you mentioned about how this this like this like naturalistic way of life contrasted with these plastic surgery loving uh grotesque aliens where there's also a very clear ideological break too because the baku are totally pacifists like soldier says the minute we mm -hmm. pick up a weapon we become one of them but 
the Sona, on the other hand, have enslaved two separate races and have incorporated them in as a labor class. So just like such a clear difference between using violence to oppress and enslave others and then just completely rejecting violence in any form. I just think it's something I just mm-hmm. thought of. And very Roddenberry. Exactly. Um, which yeah, which which very much makes sense. It it really feels like that planet and those people are the sort of like Roddenberry esque yeah, like perfect society. Exactly. Yeah. Which a little troubling <clears throat> considering most of them are really white. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I'd say pretty much all white people. And like yeah. you said, like the villains, wow. the movie goes out of their way to make the villains grotesque and you know, right. inhuman. And like, yeah, like the, mm-hmm. the, the native, like the people in the village all look like the Partridge family. That's right. exactly what right. they look like. <laughs> so, yeah. So we get um, F. Murray Abraham as uh, Rafo. Um, uh, I think, you know, does a lot of interesting work. He praised the uh, makeup effects, um, you know, being such a like actor's actor. Mm-hmm. F. Murray Abraham. I mean, he just fully embraced the makeup effects and was like, it allowed me, it unlocked something in me that allowed me to be as wild and big and scenery chewer, chewing as I wanted um, without fear of looking ridiculous because I had all this stuff on my face. <laughs> um, and uh, and I and I, I kind of love that for him. I, I I love when I hear about actors who just really embrace the 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 makeup in that way. Um, but he he absolutely loved it, and I think he I think he turns in a really great performance. I just wish that there was more. There was more about his character that I had any strong feelings about. I guess um, it's uh, it's interesting. A lot of the stuff with his sort of society of like these the, the plastic surgery obsessed um uh beings uh the sona um they uh they it reminds me a lot i don't know why but the first thing i think of any time that there's a scene where they're doing their plastic surgery stuff is it sort of reminds me suddenly of the fifth element um like it feels yeah, i know what you mean yeah it feels like sort of like sort of like heightened and french you know, uh, in that way. Um, whereas like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Or like Absolutely. Brazil. I wish there was more of that tone in this. Um, cause I think that that was really exciting, but, um, honestly, I think the thing that really hurts this is the Federation being involved, um, mm-hmm. in what they're planning on doing. Like if it was just F Murray Abraham's character and his society, planning to do all of this and it's like the thing that Picard and everybody uncovers but has nothing to do with the Federation I think that this movie is stronger I think making the Federation involved in this um, I think actually makes it more more bland and more boring and Mm -hmm. and more like I don't know. It's just it it, 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 I think it robs the, the the film of any personality as a result, because you they can't be as like 
strongly in defense of this mm-hmm. village because they also have to like go back to Starfleet eventually, you know, by the end of the movie. And and so it 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 robs, I think, the movie of a lot of its power. I totally agree. And going back to it feeling just like an overlong episode, it one of the many tropes this uh movie kind of embodies is that pretty much every Starfleet admiral is either ignorant or just flat out terrible. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Last thing that I want to mention is um, this uh, before we get into the sort of like walkthrough of the movie itself. um, I, I, there is these next generation movies are sort of uh, riddled with Berman wanting to give TV characters a, um, cameo in all of these mm-hmm. and first contact has um you know a couple of great ones you know we've got a guy from we've got two people from voyager in mm-hmm. first contact um but here uh the the um uh, the the guest stars the cameos in this were supposed to be um uh, quark um and uh and quark and rom who uh, you know another criticism that i have of these um, next gen movies is that they all sort of end by just stopping and then the credits roll. <laughs> like they don't have like a strong like go out on like like even first contact. None of them really have like a fist pump like yeah movie mm-hmm. like great movie you know. You're just like oh oh it's over okay. <laughs> um, and this movie was supposed to have a comedic scene where Rom and Quark. Um, from Deep Space Nine are uh, attempting to set up timeshares on on the Baku planet, uh, which is that's that's what the that's like was supposed to be the last beat before like we go to the credits, and I just think that that's really funny. Um, the uh, the Enterprise crew was going to be teleported, transported away, and then Quark and, <laughs> and Quark and Rom were going to show up and be like, "So timeshares," <laughs> which I just think is really funny. Uh, but they ended up cutting the scene. They shot it though, yeah. um, but uh, but they but they cut the scene before it was released because um, it was probably you know the only truly funny scene in the whole movie. It was probably felt weird. I just would have loved to see Quark in a movie, but I love Quark. That would have been so. great. Um, so uh, uh, so Nick, let's uh, let's walk through the uh, the plot of this movie. We open on the Baku are being observed by Starfleet, unbeknownst mm-hmm. to them. And they have this kind of out of context cold open where Data has gone rogue and Mm -hmm. exposes Starfleet. And it's like, oh, my gosh, what's wrong with Data? What's going on with Data? Why is Data acting up like this? Cut Mm -hmm. back. Do we get a really interesting from my perspective uh, as someone who like primarily watches the movies, hasn't seen a lot of like 90s Star Trek on TV. We got an interesting scene of world building where Picard, they're all in their formals and Picard is getting ready to meet uh, a dignitary from another species. And they he has this aside of like, yeah, between the Borg and the Dominion, we need all the allies we can get. And mm-hmm. it struck me as interesting in 1998 when this movie came out, Scott. Mm-hmm. Like as a, you know, decades long fan of the MCU, I'm used to those kinds of asides about like the Sokovia Accords or, right. you know, the super soldier serum. So it was really interesting seeing that kind of legwork being done here in Insurrection, because as you said last week in our first contact episode, Scott, 
we were at an all-time Trek output at the time. Right. This is this is peak Trek um, at this in this period mm-hmm. of time. Absolutely. Um, so this cold open, I think, is mostly successful. I think it's definitely successful in terms of like a a like what's going on here kind of opener. Um, which I really like and is actually sort of um, reminded me of the menagerie uh, mm-hmm. in terms of like that story being like about Spock portraying uh, his crew and, and the Federate in Starfleet. And you being like, what is Spock doing? Why is he doing this? Mm-hmm. What's going on? Um, and uh, and I so I was very excited at that prospect. And I, I just feel like it doesn't go anywhere. Um, I, I feel like. They never earn this opening, and I, f- I also feel like I don't know what Data's doing. Like, I don't know what the point of any of this is um, in terms of, like, you know, because they remove the, the memories of, of, like, why he turned on everybody later. And I feel like it's never really resolved in a satisfying way in terms of, like, why he did all this. Um, I understand that, like, I guess he was supposed to, like, unraveled this conspiracy and now is like trying to mess things up for Starfleet, but it just doesn't feel in character for data to have done something like that. Mm-hmm. I agree. And it, th- again, this isn't even the first time that data has gone rogue, but I agree. It is. It doesn't really get resolved in a satisfying way. And it just kind of gets, you know, sort of hand wavy. And then we move on to what the movie wants us to focus on. It's like, uh, I think like the nitty gritty of it is that Data found the holodeck ship that they were mm-hmm. making and then his, right. his, his some kind of moral imperity clause kicked in. Yeah, as, his secondary it, programming. Think, yeah, but it's never yeah. rung for enough drama. Like I think what, what Scott said of like, or, you know, if they did want to go with the Kurtz angle of like, oh my God, Data's out there and he's hurting people and we don't know why. And like. Right. We've all because, you know, you compared this to to uh, search for Spocks and they mm-hmm. they kind of try that with like, oh, they're in their casual. They're going rogue. They're a family. Yeah. But it would have been so much stronger if like them going for Spock because Spock needs our help. It's like, oh, data needs our help. That angle would have been a lot stronger. Yeah, because because the problem, again, one of the things that Michael Puller uh, talks about when, you know, he was writing draft after draft of this movie um, is the concept of just like trying to fit too many things into this movie which you know i think is generally speaking the problem with this is it is very comparable to generations in that way which is like be it's being written by someone who's never written a movie before and doesn't really is is like figuring it out as he goes along and the reason the first contact is so successful is because those two guys had had a movie under their belt and they're like, oh, okay, now we see what didn't work and we can fix it and make a movie movie. But then with this guy, we bring, we, we go back and, and we're kind of starting over from square one again with Michael Pillar, where he's once again trying to figure out how a movie works, trying to fit too many things into this. And as a result, it's like having a Federation, a movie about the Federation turning on data and the crew standing up to the Federation to protect data is an interesting story. Mm-hmm. Also the story of the plastic surgery aliens and the fountain of youth aliens uh, being at war with each other and the enterprise being stuck in the middle is also an interesting story, but 
merging those two things, I don't think makes any sense. I don't know why. Why is data the choice for the character that should be protecting the fountain of youth? Something that he gets no benefit from. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Just like from the core of the character, it doesn't make any sense. Um, I appreciate him finding the, the, the conspiracy and having that moral imperative, but like, it just doesn't, it doesn't work for me at all. Personally, it's too much. It's too much. They don't make sense with each other. The pieces don't fit. And speaking of too much, we uh, then see another argue, arguably, I guess the C plot, of this movie, the rekindling romance between Deanna Troy and mm-hmm. Riker. Uh, right. So from my perspective, as someone who only watched the next gen movies and as Scott, I'm actually genuinely, I can't wait to talk to you about what happens in nemesis because you haven't seen it, but mm-hmm. this almost feels like a trilogy of checking in. Like in first contact, they were kind of, they had chemistry, they were flirting. And in this one, they're like acting on it. Um, I don't know how much of the horniness to chalk up to like the the planet of it all, but uh-huh. um, you know, I don't know. I don't know how we feel about the the Deanna Troy like neck caressing and Riker being like, "Well, you haven't done that in a while." It kind of it felt like I was in the office watching it happen. This is obviously not sexual harassment, but it's making me uncomfortable. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And meanwhile, they well, guess we have another weird moment. So they go off to safely capture data. Uh, we get uh-huh. the admirable, the admirable, the vice admiral played by Councilman Haman from the Matrix sequel, oh, mm-hmm. Scott. I was going to bring that mm-hmm. up. Yeah. Yep. And mm-hmm. uh, Worf and Picard go on a an escape pod to go after data by themselves. We get that a crazy moment where Picard starts singing. Come out, come out wherever you are. And Worf's like, what, what are you doing? Oh, it's just a story that my mother, oh shit. And like, they're getting fired. <laughs> yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah. Um, does, does Worf has his, have his blemish yet at this point? Not that... at this point. That's later. Not at this point. I okay, do think he's okay. done the like waking up late joke already. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. It's, it's beginning. They start the, I was kind of struck by how, you know, they really start feeling the effects of the metaphasic particles pretty much as soon as they get into the briar patch. And then when I was watching the deleted scenes, I found there was actually a point where Riker tells Picard that there is actually radiation in the space dust. So it, it makes sense out of the fact, but just watching it at the time before I had watched that deleted scene, I was like, huh, okay, there might be something in the space dust then. Yeah. The Admiral mentions that the, the briar patch is like, this really inconvenient blank spot, almost like Bermuda Triangle, where there's just like no communication, reliably at least. Mm. And while flying around in space, Worf and Picard come upon Data, and Picard comes up with an ingenious plan to just let Data know subconsciously, like, hey, it's okay, it's all good. And they start singing Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, specifically, (laughs) I believe, from the HMS Pinafore. Mm -hmm. And one thing I have really grown to love about the next-gen crew, from what I've seen of them, is... Their steadfast refusal to be cool. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Starfleet Academy is just nerd central. They're, yeah. they're somehow even dorkier than the TOS crew. Somehow, yeah. yeah. I feel like the coolest quote-unquote crew is probably 
maybe Deep Space Nine, but it's only because most of them are aliens. Sure. Yeah, yeah that's true. And yeah. it's all it's the quick, humans yeah. in the future are all nerds. <laughs> yeah, it seems that way. Gene, Gene's deep vision. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this totally worked for me. It it's silly, but it's earnest and it, it mm-hmm. fits with the kind of like dorky nautical aesthetic that Star Trek has had, even going mm-hmm. back into the, the TOS movies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I yeah. really love just that little just that little moment where uh Picard's like, Have you heard of Gilbert and Sullivan? And then Worf's like, I've had I haven't had a chance to meet everyone since I've been back. And then Picard's yeah. just like <laughs> the composer's Worf. Yeah, that was a great joke. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, not all of the Worf comedy works for me. They kind of that's another thing that they pull back from generations is they make Worf the butt of a lot of the jokes again. Um Yeah. yeah. But it none of it is funny. <laughs> <laughs> Or at least very little of it. So they apprehend um, uh, they apprehend data. Or yeah, Scott, did you have anything to say? Uh, further thoughts on the the Gilbert and Sullivan scene? Well, no, it, it's more just like yeah, like you said, like they apprehend data and and they they have like Jordy um, look him over, and then like that ends the 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 data storyline, and then he gets a D plot basically at that point where he's like learning to be a kid, and I'm like, wait. What does this have to do with anything? It just, it just feel. I'm like, you already had. He had a plot. Why do we have another one now? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just structurally, it it really, it really bugs me. <laughs> have they done similar stories like that in the series? They have always kind of played with this idea that like data is this has this almost like childlike wonder about things. Sometimes, like he's. Like Riker compares him to Pinocchio in the very first episode of Next Generation. And I guess they kind of tried to lean into that here, but it's just, uh, I don't think it really works. Like the whole, the whole part at the end with like, when we'll, we'll talk about it later, but a lot of the parts with the kid trying to teach data to be a kid, they just, they fall a little flat for me. And nowhere near as interesting as like data going rogue and like attacking Starfleet. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And having to like uh, solve that mystery of like what caused him to to go rogue, and like and the fact that it just it's just him being like morally outraged is very strange to me. I don't know. <laughs> so they uh, they they go back to the the village, uh, Crusher, Troy, and Picard. And we meet the uh, well. They're they're actually decidedly not natives to the planet, right? I, I almost call them natives. Mm-hmm. No, um, they're right. not. They Dowdy points out later that they are not indigenous to the planet, right? Because because originally in that cold open, the thought process, the reason that the Starfleet was watching them in secret is because they didn't want to disrupt the Prime Directive, um, mm-hmm. because they were under the assumption that this village was full of people who had not invented warp core technology yet and by not inventing that it means that they can't have first contact with them um and and later we learn like oh yeah no we've had warp technology forever yeah we we came here on a ship mm-hmm. and then we just like bailed and we're they're, like uh... we're amish now we're like space amish <laughs> they're lack All of right, techn- we're space amish now yes yeah their lack of technology is ideological and mm-hmm. right not like their limited knowledge like yeah so we get we meet picard's love interest in the movie and yeah uh but it's it's rosie octavius uh it is yeah yeah it just clicked for me wow 
That's cool. Yeah. Uh, she says, yeah. where could warp drive take us besides away from here? <sighs> that line is framed as like being wise and like appealing to Picard's sensibilities, but it kind of goes against the, not just Picard's character as established in the show, but really just the whole ethos of Star Trek that eventually humanity will reach a point where we will resolve all of the salient problems going on on earth and then reach to the stars to learn more about what's out there and more about ourselves. You know, that's just the long right. and short of star Trek, but that line is just, it just kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth, I guess. And it's worth yeah. noting that the Baku, so we established really like concretely that the Baku are not quote primitive. They are right. extremely right. intelligent, disciplined, focused, they are aware of technology and warp capabilities, but they absolve from it. So it kind of calls into question, like Starfleet really rallies around them and protects them. And like their choice to be isolated from the Starfleet of it all and to not right. hide what turns out to be like the gifts of their world. And mm -hmm. the movie never challenges Picard's like steadfastness to like, or like, you know, like F. Murray Abraham's point of view of like, no, or the Admiral of like, hey, we should use this. So I know I, I, I want to put a pin in that. Yeah, because yeah. one of the thoughts that I had while watching this and especially him having a uh, somewhat romantic entanglement, they they're, they're, they share a kiss and the kiss was cut from mm -hmm. the movie. Um, so so it becomes a little uh, not not quite as like romantic as that I guess scores it were been. so low. Yeah, um, they don't want to see Picard kissing anybody, <laughs> nobody. Um, but uh, yeah, so but uh, the thing that I was surprised by in terms of like Picard's story arc in this is we spent such a um, long time and generations dealing with the fact that he is now the last Picard because his his whole family was killed in a fire, and so this is presenting him with an option. That would allow him to like hang out on this planet, you know, live with this woman, maybe get become a little younger, maybe have a have time to have a family, to have all the things that he's uh, uh, so like afraid of not having and not being able to continue the the Picard line. Um, and it never, he never even thinks about that like it never comes up like it never comes up that this is like an opportunity for him you know he's never like oh maybe maybe i could do this like it's never even crosses his mind which i find mm -hmm. so odd and when you compare that to the tos movies where they, they there were some variants in quality but i was surprised at the through line of like you know kirk loses his son in three and it it matters like yes mm -hmm. it you know, Absolutely. there are like four, like four is a comedy and, you know, they don't focus, but like that, that's a scar that the character has for the rest of the time that we see him. And yeah, it feels yeah. like this next gen crew kind of reset every movie. Yeah. Especially where in this movie you have Riker being captain in such like a badass way, like full blown captain of the Enterprise in this to a point where there's literally a scene where Riker and and Picard both show up and give an order at the simultaneously, and they're like, "Oh, right, <laughs> forgot about our power dynamic," um, you know, <laughs> which I which I really like. But like, that's there. But there's no situation where Picard is thinking about staying with this 
with with, the, with this group of people mm-hmm. um, to like have a family to settle down to get all the things that he was so freaked out about not having in generations just two movies mm-hmm. ago. And now he's like he's gotten over the Borg stuff, you know, because of first contact. And so it feels like a really solid opportunity for this to be about Picard thinking about settling down and leaving Starfleet and retiring. And because now he can see Riker like being a badass captain on his own, like you don't need me anymore. Like you can go and do your thing. Um, I can stay here. I can have a family. I can have kids. But not once does that come up, which I am just like very surprised by. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, yeah. We get the uh, the the Riker uh, Deanna scene where uh, they are like, "What if we could freeze time? What if we can go back in time?" And it's another theme that the movie kind of starts to play with and mold with, but never really goes anywhere compelling, in my opinion. But yeah, because even the even like what they do with Jordy in this, um, where where his his eyes grow back, um, it's not as interesting as it could be, and it also doesn't really make a lot of sense because it's like, well, they get younger. What does that have to do with his eyesight? Exactly. Like him being yeah. younger, he was born yeah. blind. So right, it. How they explain it in the scene is that the um, like the cells around his optic nerve start to regenerate or something, but it yeah. just it's inconsistent, and I think it's just because they want to have that moment where like Lavar Burton gets to not wear the contacts, and then you know Jordy can have that touching moment where he can personally experience the effects of the metaphysic radiation, but then yeah. it's it I kind of mixed feelings about that because part of what I think sort of contributes to TNG's sort of utopian feel is that it doesn't, it literally, it doesn't matter that Jordy is blind. He's accommodated for just without question or denigration. Like it's just right in the future. That kind of thing just doesn't matter. It kind of recontextualizes Jordy's relationship or are like, Oh, I didn't realize this was something Jordy had a conflict going on that he something that he resented about himself it right and it it it, it actually you it, it sort of recontextualizes his relationship with data because his like friendship with data because data is constantly chasing something that he doesn't have and something that he's not and now suddenly with this movie you're like wait is is it because you also feel that way about your sight and that's what you're you're like, is that the basis of your friendship of like your companionship with data is like this shared experience you feel with, with this kinship with data. Um, it's, it's just a very strange choice. This whole sort of, um, you know, I don't want to call it ableist because it is like, you know, he says like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lose this. Like it's, it's going to go away. I'm just enjoying mm-hmm. it while I've true, got it. It's like yeah. a new experience. Yeah. Um, but but it is odd. It, it 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 definitely is odd, and it definitely rubs me the wrong way. It. But I'm glad that Lavar Burton got something new to play with. I guess. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, like, and he really yeah, axed yeah. his butt off in that scene. I really yes appreciate Lavar Burton as an actor. I wish he had more to do in this. But um, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's almost worth it just to see Lavar Burton really get like a good scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
so similar to like what Alex said, we're like, you know, the chemistry between Riker and Deanna is so effortless and fun that you're mm-hmm. like, okay, cool. Yeah, this is happening. Um, one aspect I forgot to mention during the development process of this is that originally when this was a comedy film, when this was a lighthearted comedy film, the uh, Baku were all going to be no older than 25. Like the idea yeah. was that they were all like teenage to 25. And so it was a little more like, oh, we're go- if we stay on this planet, we're going to become teenagers. Like it's going to it's like a little more like band candy kind of like silly. OK. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so like that's where the, the that was going to be. But I think a lot of that comedy fell flat because, again, you know, you don't have the most like comedy centric writer behind well, behind the wheel of this. And the movie introduces the very serious uh, plot device of forced relocation. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Picard and Rishi and Data uncover the this plot by F. Marie, F. Marie Abraham's people and the Starfleet Admiral. Admiral. Wow. To relocate the Baku without them knowing until it's already done so that they can mine or pillage the planet to find out the secret of like how to how to harness the de-aging capabilities on mass for all of the Federation. Right. I think one of the mistakes that this movie makes, I mean, it makes a lot of mistakes, but I think in, in terms of like not following through on the concept of this movie is showing us firsthand the ramifications of removing them from the planet. Because they say like, oh, yeah, and then they'll just age like normal. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean they'll catch up to the age that they currently are? Or does it mean that they just start to slowly age now like they're supposed to? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, being removed from the planet does does uh, Rosie Octavius. uh, Does she immediately become like, you know, 60 and then like 80 and then 100? Like what are the stakes? You know, the. Yeah, what are the stakes? There there are no stakes. It's very much just like very heady con- conceptual stakes instead of um like actual like what you're supposed to do in a movie which is like show what the ramifications of this are, not just this sort of philosophical thought you know, think through mm-hmm. on on all of this. And uh <clears throat> Picard is immediately like, "No." Like this is like he they you know the script makes very like uh, on the nose references to like oh some of our darkest times in humanity had to do with forced relocation and you know playing on like the audience's knowledge of the atrocities of history to sort of get you very quickly on board with you know Picard defending the Baku, but I think a more interesting story would have been to like like you said like ask those ask more questions like yeah well okay mm-hmm. like why why aren't they sharing that is it their obligation to share the this if if it could save everyone if it could redefine life in the same way that the replicator did well and also if they aren't worried about first contact if they're not worried about ruining the prime directive at this point why are we doing any of this? Why aren't you just going and just being like hey I'm going to just like siphon off some of this radiation it'll come back right like that's I, I like why are they not just sharing it with Starfleet at that point? Like why do they have to hoard it like a uh, like a like a dragon in gold? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, like they're smog or something. Yeah, like, I I don't I don't get it. I don't I don't I don't understand where the conflict is at this point. It's one thing if again 
uh, uh, you know, interacting with them violates the prime directive. That's mm-hmm. that's OK. I understand that. But now you're telling me that interacting with them is not violating the prime directive. So what are we even doing? Why are we removing them? Why can't you just, you know, visit and <laughs> and and, you know, do run your experiments like, you know, is it is it a is it a natural resource that can be taken away like there's there's a limited supply of it or like is it an endless supply or what's the situation but they never go into any of that they just assume that it's you know 10 gallons of crude oil and you know that's that's it and once we use it it's it's it, that it's gone i don't know like i it doesn't make any sense to me i think <clears throat> some of the stakes you know come from the technology that only the Sona have and that Dowerty says that they've tried so hard to replicate, but they couldn't. And then, yeah, but like you said, I wish they would kind of go more into it. Like it's the fact that they just sort of leave the audience to kind of infer the stakes almost does make it feel like a mid tier Trek episode rather than yeah, like a fully cinematic experience. Yeah. You know, you look at what the... are you saying about what are you saying about the Baku at that point that they just don't that only they can be entrusted with this technology like they're OK. They use it right. But no one else would. Uh, so you can't have it. And it's like, well, according I thought the Federation is supposed to be, you know, good and and, you know, inherently good. And and, you know, this amazing utopian future, like now you're telling me that they would take this and uh and 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 you know destroy all of uh all of space with this uh technology and i don't really understand that i don't know you know it reminds me of you know an avatar which is decidedly a much less cerebral film than your average star trek story <laughs> sure much more interested in like the spectacle and the blockbuster but in that movie the stakes are very clearly stipulated of humanity needs mm-hmm. the unobtainium the unattain a big <laughs> huge chunk of unobtainium and the unobtainium is underneath the world tree and right and the human military is like well we need the unobtainium and the the navi are like well no this tree is our our god it is our direct link to aoa it is our afterlife it is also a biologically you could scientifically prove that it's happening too it's not even like faith it's empirically true to our biology and so when the audience sees the world tree getting attacked we understand like oh this is do or die they have no choice but to fight back. There's no other alternative right. to this. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's there's none of that established here. And Federation's the Federation, this Admiral's like sort of focus on getting this this technology, this uh radiation technology, whatever, um, is so up like it, it's just in it's in direct opposition to everything that the federation is supposed to stand for um it's it's very you know he says all of these nice things when he's explaining to picard why they're prepared to do this but it it, it feels very capitalistic he even like references capitalism uh in terms of like oh like oil and and all these other things and i just don't understand it just doesn't it, it none of it it all flies in the face of everything that the federation is supposed to stand for and that's the reason why i wish that this wasn't a federation story like i wish an admiral wasn't behind 
the, this conspiracy to to get this technology. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I totally agree. And you know, the fact that that you know, Admiral Dougherty he tries to rationalize it like, oh, it'll revolutionize medical technology, like. Like their medical technology isn't extremely advanced already. Like they don't have some sort of they don't have space cancer or some kind of big bad disease equivalent that's killing millions of people. What is killing killing millions of people is the Dominion War. So if they framed it as like, oh, we need this technology because all of these millions of people are fighting the Dominion and dying, and if they kind of framed it with some sense of urgency, but as it is, it yes. just it doesn't have that punch. Yes, a hundred percent. Yes. And there's there's a scene that I was curious about to hear from both of you as as people who've who've watched more of this era of Trek. Um the Admiral has a scene with F. Murray Abraham's character where F. Murray Abraham says, like, Star Trek the, the Federation is dying. It's old. It's spread mm-hmm. too Thin. The reason that the Borg and the Dominion and the Cardassians are all attacking one after the other is because they sense blood in the water. And you all, everyone can sense the Federation isn't going to last much longer. And it's cool watching that knowing like, oh, like this, they overcome this. It, it does keep going because we have like Lower Decks and Discovery and Picard and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But as someone watching Voyager and DS9 at the time, Scott, did this like resonate with you just as like a Trek viewer at least? Um, yeah, you know, like I, I, I liked the references. I mean, again, I wish that the reference was pulled more into the plot, like Alex suggested. Um, but you know, it, it, so it, it sort of, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just sort of like on paper. Uh, it's an on paper reference. It's not, it doesn't feel like it's built into the DNA of the Mm -hmm. movie. This still feels very much in the era of like next generation, um, it feels almost obligatory, you know. like all of these references right. that they paper in, but there's nothing substantial behind them, really. Right. Right. Like right. Uh, like the awkward Battle of New York references that you would get in Daredevil. Oh, yeah. And the Man, I just show, realized. Yeah. So, so one of the things that we, we slipped right past was um, the thing that happens at the at the beginning with uh, with Picard meeting like the uh, dignitary or whatever um, of that alien species. And he puts the he has like the thing on his head. Um, and it's supposed to be very silly. Uh, and it just feels like it feels like something that like a boomer would think was really funny. <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, but uh, I just realized like I was thinking just again, like talking about the criticisms that we have with how this ties into things that are happening right in in the grander Star Trek universe. You're looking at this scene where that's when Worf shows up. And I just I'm like, well, you could have just very easily been like, oh, yeah, these guys came to DS9 and then Worf agreed to fly them over to the Enterprise to be part of this thing. And then, boom, there's your explanation. And like, you know, it doesn't have to be like as cool as an entrance as as uh, first contact was for him. Mm-hmm. But like, at least you can have a reason like, oh, yeah, I, I drove them over. Like you could have shown them arriving and Worf gets off the ship last. And you're like, oh, they're oh, OK. I see. That's that's how that worked out. Um, but like they couldn't even bother to do that. They're just like, no, let's just make a joke out of there's no reason for him to be here. <laughs> sure. They go to we get more of the uh, they, they're relocating the Baku out of the villages. The Sabu ships attack. They are teleporting Baku en masse. As they, the cool sequence. I like that sequence a lot. The, this sequence, and then the 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 um, 
transporter drones sequence later Mm-hmm. Um, like like tw- twenty minutes from now, mm-hmm. uh, those two sequences are really really cool and exciting. Like, uh, I, I don't know how often I don't I can't think of another instance where transporters were used as a uh, like a scary thing. You know, like in terms of like oh no, like people are being transported. Like that's that's <laughs> I Not like that I like that as a no. as a thing. I think it's yeah. very effective, honestly. Hmm. It's an actual no, inversion think... of something. Yes, yeah, yes, exactly. I like that. And the uh, the attack on the on planet side is countered with a space battle, where, as Scott said, we get Riker in full captain of the Enterprise mode, uh, with plenty of like badass moments. Yeah, it, I think a lot of that works, like the 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 ship maneuvering, the Riker maneuver. Yeah, yeah. I love. The I, I will see. <laughs> oh, see, that's the only thing I think doesn't work. Oh, really? I think I love I think, it because I think it's joystick... so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. It is very. It is very silly. But I think it. It's sort of. I I think it's silly in a moment that like shouldn't be, and so it right. it, it takes me out of it a little bit. Uh, so I was gliding past it because I don't find it that compelling. But we do get a couple of scenes following up on the romantic subplot between uh, Doctor Octopus's wife and. Picard. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, it, it it is not compelling at all. I don't think they have any chemistry. Um I I I I just yeah, it just doesn't. It doesn't it doesn't work because there again there's no stakes to it. There's nothing mm-hmm. that she is offering him that he can be wooed with other than just like the fact that she's, you know, attract an attractive woman. Um, and, uh, seems to be wise beyond her ears. Uh, mm-hmm. but as we learned that, you know, she's not actually, cause she's like 300, but yeah, she's, I don't know. She's actually a 300 year old who doesn't know how to swim. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's another thing I noticed too. Like <laughs> there's one scene which kind of struck me in the first, um, you know, watching it uh, yesterday is that the card and Anish, like they walk past some, like I'm not sure if it's like a quilt or something that, you know that. Like Picard a mosaic points out or something. Like, oh, it's like a mosaic, yeah. But Picard says this is extraordinary craftsmanship, and then he says, "Oh, this is actually just the work of students." And then they're ready; they'll be ready to apprentice soon for thirty years. So it's like I'm wondering she doesn't have like what has she been doing for three hundred years? Like she's obviously hasn't been learning to swim, but. Had, does she have any kind of like trade or yeah anything? No, we don't any know any character about outside of like doing the whole slowing down time sensory thing. Like it's, I think it would have been interesting and maybe a little bit more consistent with Picard's character if she was like, I don't know he's always really loved archaeology, so maybe she could have something to do yeah. with that. Yeah, I I think again in the world where she is meant to represent the thing that he wants, which is to like retire and settle down and have a wife and a family. Mm-hmm. I think it makes the most sense for her to run a winery on this planet. Oh, absolutely. That would be perfect. Like, like the idea of her running a winery and, and feeling a kinship with like the grapes and the wine in that, like it gets older and, and, and becomes better the older that it gets. And like all the, like there's so much juicy stuff that you could have pulled from that and did things that would make sense that Picard would be like really attracted to in terms of like a personality. Um, And that's just not, none of that is here because you're right. 
what the hell do we know about her? Like, <laughs> as far as we know, she doesn't even have a trade. <laughs> exactly. She's just been sitting around not swimming for 300 years. Yeah, like at, right. at the cold open, you know, we see, you know, oh, they're, it's like the Shire. Like the, right. the children yeah. are playing hacky sack. The adults are tilling the land. <laughs> and you're like, okay, cool. Right on. Like the, these, these seem like pretty. But then, yeah, you find out that they're like, they're all hundreds of years old and they take <laughs> decades to learn an artisan craft and like, Again, maybe this is kind of the capitalist in me, but I'm like, what are you guys doing all day? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are you, yeah. What are you built working toward? What are you? Are you, are you just kind of hanging out? Like, you don't. Need, do they die? Do they ever die? I mean, that's the thing. Well, even in like the utopian future of Star Trek, where no one has to work to live and everyone's basic needs are met, people still go to school. They still learn how to do things. There yeah. are still like so many civilian scientists and, you know, hollow novelists or whatever, but yeah, it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah, there's a, it, it's interesting. Cause we learned that she's one of the oldest of the Baku. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it could have been a really interesting move to like, be like, you know, so what, what do you like if his follow-up question to like, you know, the tapestry thing or whatever was like, what do you, so what do you, what's, what's your trade? And she, she's like, she's like, oh, I've, I've had many. And just like, yeah, I studied this for a hundred years. Mm-hmm. I moved on. I st- I learned something else for a hundred years. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, and now mm-hmm. I'm wrapping up learning, uh, uh, you know, this third thing, um, before I, I, I'm thinking about getting into this next, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Even anything, anything like that, just a couple throwaway lines would have just added just, just a little bit more texture to their relationship. Yeah. yeah, just something. Yeah. yeah, something to add some dimension to to any any of the, any of that yeah. relationship. So they're all yeah. beamed aboard. We learn that they are in fact the same race. Uh, F. Murray Abraham, da, da, da. yes, F. Murray Abraham yeah. kills the admiral <laughs> with the plastic surgery machine. Yeah, it, it is interesting that that we we have two movies in a row with an alien species that is like full on body horror. Like mm-hmm. that's. That's the point. That's true. Yeah. Um. I I think that's interesting because it's not a Star Trek thing typically. Like also the, the, the both the Borg and and the what is it Sabu is that the Sona, the Sona. Both the the Borg and the Sona are atypical Star Trek you know villains. Mm-hmm. I would say Star Trek aliens. They are, but I would yeah, say and- that Emery Abraham is definitely like the prototypical Star Trek movie villain. Like, oh, yeah, 100%. Absolutely. Absolutely. I honestly think (laughs) I was thinking about how it kind of reminds me of uh, Christopher Plummer's performance in Star Trek VI, another great Mm -hmm. Star Trek villain performance, maybe the best of the original series area, except for maybe Ricardo Montalban. Going back to the Sona and the Borg being kind of atypical is that they both lean into the whole body modification thing. A really great behind-the-scenes interview on YouTube with Michael Westmore, who uh, did the, I think it was the creature design or the makeup or what have you. And he said that he actually scrubbed up and went into surgery with surgeons and would see them doing facelifts. And you can kind of see in, like, the very first scene where F. Murray Abraham is introduced, like, you see them pulling back the skin over his face, which I always thought was just really cool and gross. Yeah. Well, Westmore um, talked about how proud he was of 
uh, this makeup because of how paper thin the the latex was. Um, hmm. Where he was like, yeah, like you know, uh, Murray Abraham would turn would like move his head a little bit, like just just like turn his head, and his skin would be trans. The makeup would be translucent, like. Mm-hmm. And he was like, it was so cool. I was like so proud of it. Like, he loved it. <laughs> they look great. Yeah. They, they yeah. do look really good. I do really enjoy the practical makeup effects in this, not just mm-hmm. for the Sona, but also for the Tarlac and the Allura. I'm a big fan of the uh, the holodeck reveal. Yeah. I, I also wonder how big the holodeck is. Um, I know yeah, that but it's not really clear, is it? No, I know that the, the, the thought process was like, well, they would only be on the holodeck for like max a couple of days, um, before they would, uh, move them to like another, yet another replica on a different planet. Um, which I don't think would work out. Cause I don't know how you would find a planet with the exact same, you know, uh, terrestrial layout as the planet <laughs> they were just on. Um, but uh, that's why they get uh, an even it, bigger holodeck ship. <laughs> yeah. So like that's but that's the thing is like the thing that I don't understand, because like my 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 way of understanding how the holodeck works is like it's not really that big. Right. But the but you're walking a lot of times you're like walking in place and you're and the, the holodeck is changing around you to like recreate the feeling that you're walking a long distance. Which works when there's only like one, maybe two people in the holodeck walking in the same direction. But when you've got 600 people all doing different things and walking in different directions, this holodeck has to be absolutely massive, like the size of their village, or this isn't going to work at all. So I don't know. I just think that that's... It's, I, I also found myself asking a lot of questions back in Generations when they were on, like, the ship of, like, mm-hmm. how does this work? Mm-hmm. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like... So, Absolutely. Uh, something happens in this. I don't know. I, don't, I, I haven't seen it in the Star Trek movies so far, but it kind of makes sense with the these movies being kind of amalgamous with naval warfare. Is mm-hmm. the bad guys, like, siege the Enterprise. They try to board the Enterprise. And it it, right. it reminded me of like a Pirates of the Caribbean movie of all of a sudden Worf mm-hmm. gets overrun with these bad guys as they like they're trying to like take the deck and I thought that was neat. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that is good. Not so good. Are we? Yeah, please. Yeah, are we? Are we nearing the point of um of uh, of uh, F. Murray Abraham's like buddy uh, turning on him? Is that yeah? How, uh, like, yeah I'm, I'm pleading Gallatin. for your life. Yeah. Okay. I think. That's a um, really strong scene, honestly. I just want to I want to shout out because I was I was watching this and I was like, I feel like I know this guy and I don't know why he feels so familiar because obviously he's like behind, you know, a bunch of yeah, yeah. makeup effects. But I was like, I was like, I know this guy and I look him up. Turns out, um, you know, he is he's a TV guy. He's been in tons of stuff, you know, from like Gilmore Girls to Firefly to CSI and, you know, all kinds of stuff. But uh, the thing that I think we all probably know him best as is uh, Star-Lord's grandpa in the Guardians of the Galaxy oh. movies. Yes. Yeah. I thought I saw his name in the credit. You ever see a name in the credits and you're like, why does that name register with me? Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, but uh, Oh, isn't he yeah, also the uh, – he's the mayor in Slither, right? 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he's in all of James Gunn's movies. But uh, yeah, it's Greg Henry yes. is is his is his name. But I was like, I was like, I was so proud of myself that like <laughs> I didn't recognize that that's who it was. Yeah. But once I looked it up, I was like, I knew I recognized him. I knew he wasn't just like some random yeah. guy. Okay. No, it, it is a good scene. It kind of feels like that spark of Roddenberry. Like, oh yeah, Picard is able to reach out across the aisle, so to speak, and. Like, oh, I'm actually not that dare. I can, I, I think I can w- make this person see my point of view and get him on my side. Yeah, yeah. Well, especially because he saw like a crack in his armor where F. Murray Abraham is prepared to just annihilate all of these, all of, all of these people, and he's like, "Whoa, that's that's extreme." Like, we were just gonna move them. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know. And now I know they're they're our kin. They're like our people. Right. Right. Yeah. Pretty disturbing, honestly. And it's ah, there's a certain. I guess impetuousness to uh, Rafo's character that I think F. Murray Abraham is just—he's able to infuse it with this sort of just sliminess. Like I get the feeling, like watching this character, like it's a guy who really just never outgrew his like edgy fifteen-year-old phase. Like never stopped resenting the people around him. Like you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Picard calls what's going on. Uh, he he compares it to patricide. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Child unable to let go of this deep seated Mm -hmm. resentment. And we get what is weirdly become a, uh, a standard in the next gen movies, uh, like uh, a tank top Picard, like (laughs) scaling rafters, scaling, like climbing up stuff. This was, uh, this was something that, um, uh, that Patrick Stewart, uh, requested because he was like, I feel like Picard is now sort of like an action hero Mm -hmm. and I don't want to relinquish that after first contact. So like, can we do something similar? Can we, can we give him sort of like an action moment? And unfortunately they, I mean, they kind of just full blown recreate the exact kind of scenario that you get in, in first contact where he's again, scaling, scaling up stuff and hanging up off of things and using his upper body strength. Um, which I, I, I feel like you could have done something else. I don't know. Originally, he wanted like an Alamo scene where they're like in the village, like taking on. um, Yeah, taking on everybody. And that was going to be that like that's it was like, you know, no, we're going to defend this village um, kind of thing. And uh, and they just decided against it. I don't know. They just like in the in the development process, it just wasn't working. Um, I mean, that could have been screenplay a little more interesting to see play out. Maybe, you know, use a little more of that set that they spent most of their budget on apparently. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the other uh, touchstones that they've used a lot um, is uh, the Magnificent Seven, um, Mm. you know, which in itself is, uh, you know, what was a remake or was remade as Seven Samurai? Which, which direction was it? I think it was remade as Seven Samurai. Okay, yeah. Seven Samurai was second? Or... No, I think it's the I opposite. I believe so. I... Or is it? Oh, I, the I opposite. Okay. Well, in any event, um, the the seven guys come to a town and protect <laughs> it story. Um, so that that was like, that was a touchstone. And so like when that was the original plan, the Alamo thing made a lot of sense. But I, I, I truly feel that involving the Federation in the story takes away from that you remove the federation from this and you can just have them coming in to invade the town and 
you know, the the crew of the Enterprise protecting this village. That's a really cool Star Trek story, I think. Um, but alas, uh, I think I think it becomes overcomplicated as a result. What do you think of Picard's like John McClane moment of like shooting that exhaust pipe and like sending Ephraim Abraham flying? I thought that was very funny. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> yeah. not intentionally. It's like, oh, you don't want to risk anxiety the exhaust? Well, I will. It's just, it's just, it's so, it's kind of what I said in Generations. It's just something so innately funny to me of seeing this deeply noble, like, elegant cerebral man resorting to like greasy fisticuffs <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. yeah uh just just be like just like you know uh xavier being like fuck you magneto like <laughs> just decking him you know it's just it's not it's not what you expect to see <laughs> uh so uh, yeah they teleport off if marie abraham explodes uh and we get a very kind of like yeah cozy dating while data is just having just having fun playing in the hay with that kid yeah he's learning to play it is the most in in a movie that is loaded with just generic tng episode stuff this scene the scene where the kid is explaining to him what it's like being a kid and and Mm -hmm. how he needs to learn how to play and then the follow-up of them playing together in the hay those two scenes are the most generic TNG shit in any of these movies. Like it is just like, I mean, it 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 it, it it's just like straight out of a TNG episode. Um, Absolutely, n- not cinematic at all. But not <laughs> I even. Know. I feel like even the TNG episode where they had a kid shadow data was more interesting, at least on a psychological level. Than yeah. what they have here. Well, they didn't even. They only g- gave it half a movie because exactly. You know, he had a a whole other thing going on for the first half, and then now the second half, they're like, "What if he learned to play?" <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Picard uh, has the last scene with Anish, where she's like, "Hey, what if we stay? What if you stayed here and like, you know, we started a life here?" And Picard's like, "No, the 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 Federation is in perilous times. I can see that now, and mm-hmm. they need me." And I'm like interested to see if that thread carries over at all into Nemesis or like, but I guess it's another example of something that they could have made more of a point of because it's like, like, like you, you both said earlier, it's giving lip service to stuff like the Dominion War, but we haven't really focused on it in any compelling way in this movie. It, it boggles my mind that no one thought to make a movie where like, it's like a, like a Deep Space Nine tng movie where like right it's, it's about it's set in the dominion war it's like a full-blown like war story i that feel like that would have like gotten butts in seats i don't know that um, would have been incredible honestly and i yeah. always you know i've always wished that the deep space nine crew had some kind of cinematic outing and what you just just described would have been perfect mm-hmm. i i just wish ira bear had written a star trek movie i mm. think that I, 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 you know, I look at his career post DS9 and it's just like, he's got nothing going on. And I'm just like, can somebody like get him to write something cool again? I don't know. Mm. It's nuts. He's such a good writer and just was completely after DS9, just, just gone, just, just disappeared. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I would have loved to have seen a Star Trek movie written by him. Have you seen the, um, 
the Deep Space Nine documentary, uh, what we leave behind or what we left not, behind. No, not yet. I wanted to like rewatch all. Uh, this is insane, but I wanted to rewatch all of DS Nine before I watched that documentary. Well, no, so. I totally get what you mean. <laughs> yeah, no. it's, it feels so obvious now. We, you know, we're in this golden age of cross pollination and shared universes and crossovers. That yeah, it feels like this big glaring like you can see the poster of like yeah Picard Cisco with like a bunch of crazy ship battles and you know yeah and I guess that's like almost the opposite of what this movie is which is like a a trying to be a quaint very love letter to Gene Roddenberry of like a an allegory morality tale in space not a morality tale but morality right, exercise right. yeah 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 so we will we will see I'm gonna drop this I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna drop this the this uh this bomb here I don't know if I've said this yet. Uh, I like Nemesis. Oh, okay. Wow. That's pretty controversial. I've seen it <laughs> twice because I saw it as part of the, the rewatch in 2016. So yeah, I did not, I did not follow you into the next gen movies for the rewatch. I remember so you did. Yeah. Yeah. You did that on your, you did the next gen movie solo. I, I did not join you on that endeavor. Um, uh, I think gonna... because I was like, it was, it was, it was about, you know, uh, getting prepared for Star Trek Beyond, right. and I, and that's the OG crew, and so I was just like, I don't really see the point. Um, but in any event, no, uh, I think Nemesis is probably the TNG movie I've seen the most besides First Contact. Whoa. When wow. I was yeah. a kid, I really, I don't, I'm not sure if I liked it, but I just, I was so fascinated by it, and mm. you know, as I've gotten older, my feelings on it have. I guess soured a little bit, but I just remember just being, I guess, really emotionally invested on a number of levels. And I knew, of course, you know, by this time there hadn't been any Star Trek movies, at least not until 2009 came out. So I knew it was probably the last time, or at least so I thought at the time that we would see the uh, next generation crew. It'll be it'll be interesting because yeah we, I don't think I don't think any of us were super hot on this one so we'll see we'll see if like how the this is kind of where the the good one bad one math starts to get wonky I think yeah it's yeah. it's the one that breaks the curse in the worst way possible <laughs> yeah. the opposite way you'd want <laughs> they were all waiting for just a, a reprieve from the odd one but uh, they were sorely mistaken yeah well, Alex thanks so much for being on and talking insurrection with us absolutely yeah. thank you both so much for having me on it was a pleasure yeah absolutely and uh we will uh we will see all of you listening at home uh next week to talk about star trek nemesis and wrap up the next generation era of uh, star trek films and uh we'll talk to you then bye everybody bye